give birth to the eternal word of God in an ineffable manner. Rejoice therefore, O universe, when you hear this news, and glorify with the angels and the shepherd, him who shall appear as a young child, who is also God from all eternity. And to our topic, Dr. Robert Moynihan graduated from the Gregorian University in Rome, Harvard College, and Yale University, where he received a PhD in medieval studies in 1988. He is the founder of Urbi at Orbi Communications and Inside the Vatican Magazine, as well as a respected journalist, author, lecturer, and lecturer throughout the entire Catholic world. His credentials are too many for me to list here, but more importantly than those, Dr. Moynihan is a visionary. He sees the needs of the church, and he understands how to fulfill them. Inside the Vatican Magazine is a, is a sure way when you're questioning what's going on in the church, you'll find the answers in the pages of Inside the Vatican Magazine. It's very trustworthy, so I highly recommend it to you. Even more important than that to me, and that is about a year ago, a little over a year ago, well, about a year and a half ago now, when he was with us last time, the first time he came to the Institute of Catholic Culture, afterwards, he pulled me aside and he said, Sabatino, the Institute of Catholic Culture should be in every community in the United States, in every community throughout the world. We have to start educating Catholics. And it was from that day that I began to consider the possibility of um, leaving our home at St. John's and going out and presenting programs at parishes at no charge. Okay, we began that process back then, so we're very thankful to Dr. Moynihan. Dr. Moynihan. Good evening, and thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be here with you. I think Sabatino is doing something very special, and I think you're all participating in that. Um, I have the privilege of speaking on a topic which I think is the central theological doctrine of our faith, the doctrine of the Incarnation. And I could take hours to discuss it and explain all the various permutations because for 200 years, during the 300s and 400s, all the first general councils, ecumenical councils of the church were focused on the incarnation, the meaning of the incarnation, and they argued about it for 200 years. So I'm going to try to settle it in about 20 minutes. <laughs> the Incarnation, said Cardinal Giuseppe Siri of Genoa, a man who on four occasions in the last century was almost elected Pope, is the highest revealed truth. The truth of the ontologic salvation of man. Siri also said, the questions of the relations of the church with the world, the question of the natural and the supernatural, the meaning of sacramental reality, the question of humankind's of mission and vocation in history, all questions concerned with the knowledge of God, the means and ways of salvation, have one common denominator, the incarnation of the Word of God by Mary and the Holy Spirit. If this truth of the Incarnation, this is still Siri speaking, is contested and altered, as it was, for example, by Arius, as indeed it always is, all the other realities of man, his history and his final end, are de facto contested and altered. In other words, it's the linchpin. That's why people fought over it with such vigor, and we're coming tonight to look at the greatest fighter of them all for this doctrine, St. Athanasius of Alexandria. Sometimes people live in special times. We live in special times, times of turmoil, times of new world order, maybe times when the world draws toward its end. Certainly interesting times for our church, 
interesting times for our technology, for our economy, for our government in this country. Athanasius grew up in a fascinating time. He was born right at the end of the 200s, in about the year 297. For one, from the time Jesus was crucified and the first Christians followed him and created and joined in the Catholic Church and the Christian Church, for 283 years, the Roman government and the governments connected with Rome regarded it as a pernicious crime. It was against the rule of Rome to worship this crucified carpenter. And so the Christians were persecuted repeatedly for 283 years. From 30 AD to 313, when Emperor Constantine, after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, when he saw the cross in the sky, and it said, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. And he said, I will now not become a Christian, but I will give a certain credibility to Christian faith. He was baptized only on his deathbed about 25 years later. But Constantine permitted Christianity to be legal in the year 313. Athanasius was born in 297, so he would have been 16 years old. If a faith and a group is persecuted for hundreds of years, it develops a cohesion and an esprit de corps which the early church developed. And that's why we consider it in some ways the heroic age of the church. The age of the catacombs, the age of the martyrs, and the age of the church fathers. But we divide the church fathers into two great groups, the pre-Nicene and the post-Nicene, or we call them the anti-Nicene and the post-Nicene church fathers. Nicene refers to Nicaea, and Nicaea refers to a little town next to Constantinople where the Council of Nicaea was held in the year 325. It was the first great council in the church. It was held under the auspices of the Emperor Constantine. And prior to that time, it would have been illegal for the Christians to gather in that way. And a gathering like this, for example, tonight would have been impossible. The Roman soldiers, if they'd learned what Sabatino was doing, they would have some troops here to break up this meeting, arrest some of us, and uh, probably bring us to the Colosseum to be thrown to the lions. <coughs> Athanasius was born in Egypt, in Alexandria. Now, Egypt is ancient. Egypt is rich in a type of uh, human wisdom. They have thousands of years of history. And Egypt at that time in the Roman Empire remained a great cosmopolitan center of learning. Remember that it was in Egypt in about 200 BC that the Jewish elders got together and finally put the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, the Septuagint, meaning 70 meaning 70 rabbis sat down in 70 different rooms and translated it, and they came out, and the scriptures, according to the pious tradition, were all identical, and that became the Septuagint edition of the Old Testament, which was the edition that most of the early Christians liked to use. That was done in Alexandria. Alexandria was, in a way, the, in some ways, comparable to the New York City or... Paris or something like that of the day. So for Athanasius to be born there meant that he was in a city where there was a lot of intellectual study going on, and yet it was also right at that last great persecution, 303 to 305 Diocletian. And it was perhaps the most brutal of all the persecutions. We don't know what happened to Athanasius, but we believe that he was affected deeply emotionally by the sight of the Christians in that last persecution when he would have been seven, eight, nine years old. 
Now, what it did to Athanasius was forged him. Uh, when you take a sword and you form the sword in Toledo, Spain, you take a pot of freezing water and you take the red sword and you plunge it to temper it into the freezing water and it becomes a tempered sword. You are plunged into suffering and that suffering tempers you and makes you more effective as a fighter. And that's what happened to Athanasius. And the rest of his life, he never ceased to fight for the truth. And that is why in the year 2009, 1800 years later, we are still talking about him. Athanasius. Now, he received a name, and probably you've all heard it, Athanasius Contra Mundum. Athanasius contra against mundum the world. One man against the world. Now why did he receive that name? Was the whole world against him? Well, in fact, for a time it seemed so. It seemed that only one man was left in the entire Mediterranean world who would still preach the truth about the incarnation. And it was Athanasius. That's why they gave him the name Athanasius Contra Mundum. Now, why were everyone else against Athanasius' teaching? They had followed a man whose name was Arius. And he was a priest who was very intelligent, very slick, very learned, and actually was a very good man. Dressed nicely. And he handled lectures and homilies very well. But he had one element of his preaching, which was that Jesus was not fully God. And therefore, the incarnation was not the incarnation of God in the child Jesus, but something different, a little bit less, a great prophet. And Arius eventually won over more than 50% of all the bishops in the Mediterranean world. At least we believe that. We don't have accurate statistics. But Cardinal John Henry Newman once said, the world awoke in the middle of the 300s to find itself and grown to find itself Aryan. There was a majority. And that's one point to remember. We are not really interested in democracy when we're talking about doctrine. We're interested in the truth. And 999 people can believe something and say they'll vote for it, but they still may be wrong. The truth may be defended by one man, as it was by Athanasius. Now, I said when I started out that the doctrine of the Incarnation was the central doctrine of the faith. And I don't want to be in a competition with other church doctrines, but I believe that that is a, a true statement. All of the Old Testament points toward the mystery of the plan of God to save a fallen world. And that plan is the entrance into time of God, not a messenger of God, but God himself. The Old Testament is filled with premonitions of this, and the entire New Testament is filled with who is this man, Jesus? Is he the Son of God? Is he Elias or Elisha returned? Is he a great prophet? Is he the Messiah? And that is why I say that the battle Athanasius fought was the battle at the very heart and beginning of our faith, and he won that battle. And I'm going to take a few minutes, not too long, to explain his arguments. <coughs> Athanasius wrote a work called De Incarnatione Verbi Dei, concerning or of the incarnation of the Word of God. Now, incarnation, as you know, means 
enfleshment, coming into flesh. Flesh is this that we have. Verbi Dei, of the Word of God. The Word of God is not flesh. The Word of God is spiritual. The Word of God is eternal and it's holy. Normally, you would say that it's a contradiction or an impossibility for something that's eternal, holy, and spiritual to be enfleshed, to become flesh, to be incarnated. What we say when we say Jesus was incarnate God is the mystery that any ordinary logical person would say, that can't be true. That can't be true. And that is why for 200 years, the whole two centuries, once they came up from underground, the whole 200 years, from the early 300s to the late 400s into the 500s, they were debating how to understand, how to give verbal formulation to this one teaching. But why was the teaching so important? It was important because it was the secret of God's plan that the Jews, in some sense, had been entrusted with. The prophets certainly were close to it, but it had in some way escaped them. They'd missed it in some way, and then they rejected it, and then they condemned it. And for the Greeks, it was folly because it was unreasonable. The Greeks believed in reason, and this was against reason. So Athanasius, sitting in Alexandria, trained as an Egyptian and trained in Greek culture, and studying at the feet of the Bishop of Alexandria named Alexander, wrote a work in about the year 318, which is considered the classic work on the Incarnation, De Incarnatione Verbi Dei. And this is a quick run-through. In his first chapter, he talks about the humiliation and incarnation of the Word. And he says, and he's writing to a friend named Macarius, who's a pagan. He says, come Macarius, worthy of that name. Macarius is becoming a Christian. He's joining the Christian church. And true lover of Christ, let us follow up the faith of our religion and set forth also what relates to the words becoming man and to his divine appearing among us, which Jews traduce and Greeks laugh to scorn, but we worship. That's the second sentence of the treatise. He says the doctrine that he's going to explain is related also to the fact of creation. So he's talking about the most important issues of all. How did anything at all come into existence? How did this universe come into being? How was it created? The incarnation is the final flower of the creation. He said, man was created above the rest, but he was incapable of independent perseverance. Hence, the exceptional and supernatural gift of being in God's image with the promise of bliss if he would not sin. So Athanasius writes, Out of nothing and without its having any previous existence, God made the universe to exist through his word. In a way, that idea is contested throughout the last 2,000 years of Western history, and it's being contested today by scientists who say, we know now that there was a Big Bang, and that was the origin of the universe. But the truth is, that explains nothing. Of course it explains nothing, logically, because either the Big Bang had something before it, or came from something else, or something started it. They're just postulating a moment when the Big Bang started, and they don't explain anything. So there's no meaning to this Big Bang theory. There's just technique. 
that from that moment on, they understand, according to the theory, that this Big Bang unfolded and for a few milliseconds there were hydrogen atoms and then the other atoms after, and then the universe unfolded. But it doesn't explain where it came from. Athanasius starts by saying, Christians and Jews believe that God created the world, the universe, out of nothing and without its having any previous existence. <clears throat> he says through Moses, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He's, and Athanasius is citing this and he cites the book of the shepherd Hermas. First of all, believe that God is one which created and framed all things and made them to exist out of nothing. Paul also refers to this, says Athanasius. Quote, Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God, so that what is seen has not been made out of things which do appear. Again, passages in scripture which prove that Christian and Jewish belief is crea creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, by a being who is self generating and self-existing and completely holy, that is, God. He says, for God is good, or rather, is essentially the source of goodness, nor could one that is good be niggardly of anything. Whence, grudging existence to none, he has made all things out of nothing by his own word, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Athanasius makes the affirmation that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is the means by which God created the entire universe. This is traditional Catholic teaching, but if you think about it, it's uh, almost avant-garde. Uh, it explains, doesn't mean we can understand it but it explains where the universe came from. It came from the speaking of a word of a being who had overflowing plenitude of existence, which became the universe, the speaking of the word. Athanasius continues, you are wondering perhaps for what possible reason, having proposed to speak of the incarnation of the word, we are at present treating of the origin of mankind. And you probably are wondering the same thing. But this too properly belongs to the aim of our treatise. For in speaking of the appearance of the savior among us, we must speak necessarily of the origin of men that you may know the reason of his coming down was because of us, and that our transgression called forth the loving kindness of the word, that the Lord should both make haste to help us and appear among men. For of his becoming incarnate, we were the object, and for our salvation he dealt so lovingly as to appear and be born even in a human body. So Athanasius is telling us the Incarnation had a point, had a purpose. It was intended by God to save fallen man. It's the answer to a problem. Thus, then, God has made man and willed that he should abide in incorruption, that is, we shouldn't have fallen, but men, having despised and rejected the contemplation of God, and devised and contrived evil for themselves, received the condemnation of death. Okay, it's the death penalty. There's the key. The incarnation is the plan of God to heal the fallen universe and bring an end to death. That's the story that Athanasius is talking about. And it's the story of the church. And there's no bigger story. Everyone may try to genetically experiment and end death that way, but they're just going to have very aged people. The resurrection, which is the end of the incarnation, puts an end to death. 
And Athanasius gets to that in about seven minutes. I went through this document and I tried just to choose a few paragraphs because I believe that you want to hear some of Athanasius' words, not my words. And he writes that the human race was wasting, God's image was being effaced, and his work ruined. Either then God must forego his spoken word by which man had incurred ruin, that is, if you eat of the apple, you will die. Either you had to go back on that. Or that which had shared in the being of the word must sink back again into destruction, in which case God's design would be defeated. So he had, a, he had to do something. He had no good solution. So he had to come up with something completely unexpected. For this cause, then, death having gained upon men and corruption abiding upon them, the race of man was perishing. The rational man, this is interesting, the rational man made in God's image was disappearing. And the handiwork of God was in the process of dissolution. I take the fact, all of us have probably at one time or another thought, what is the difference or what is it that we are as men? men and women, human beings, persons, what is this quality of mind and spirit that we have? And we're fascinated. We look at an animal and we say, they, they, they seem to have something, but they, they don't reason in the way human beings reason. So we, we think we're different than animals. Not better, but different. Uh, the quality that most philosophers have said was the quality that distinguished us was the quality of reason, which is the quality of drawing out consequences from suppositions and premises. The quality of also consciousness, which is different from an animal. A dog sees a rabbit and he chases the rabbit. The dog knows that there's a rabbit there. So a dog, a dog has a type of simple consciousness. But a man sees a rabbit, knows that he sees the rabbit, and he knows that he knows. We have an infolding uh, complexity of our consciousness which gives us a type of uh, another level of existence. I would say it's the spiritual level. It's at least the intellectual level. I would say it's the level of personhood. It's the type of thing I think that Teilhard de Chardin was talking about when he talked about thought being born. And on that level, I think, we are prepared to touch infinity and eternity and the logos of God. I think from that level of existence, all spiritual search begins. But what Athanasius was saying is that that quality of being was diminishing. It was as if and I'm, I'm stretching this a bit, but it's as if he's saying humanity could actually sink back down and lose the quality of reason and become animals again. If that shocking... Actually, sometimes it seems that it's happening. <laughs> but this was a physical death, therefore, but also a type of um, evolutionary death. And Athanasius writes, for death, as I said above, and I really take Athanasius as a man who could be here today with us, and we would find him very modern. He would talk about uh, things that, uh, that concern us about the good and the happy life and good government and uh, family life and, and, and faith and prayer. And, and Athanasius would be discussing all these things and he would have the full knowledge of all of the Aristotelian and Platonic work that had preceded him seven, eight hundred years before. And he, in a, he was a learned and cultured man in the early 300s. And right after him comes Augustine who picks it up in the Latin context. Because uh, Athanasius, of course, is always from the Greek world. He says, for death, as I said, gained from that time a legal hold over us from the time of Genesis. And it was impossible to evade the law since it had been laid down by God because of the transgression. And the result was in truth at once monstrous and unseemly. 
For it were monstrous, firstly, that God, having spoken, should prove false, that when once he had ordained that man, if he transgressed the commandment, should die the death, after the transgression, man should not die. That would be terrible if God was proven wrong. But God's word, in that case, would be broken, for God would not be true if when he said that we should die, man died not. Again, it were unseemly that creatures once made rational and having partaken of the word should go to ruin and turn again toward non-existence by the way of corruption. This is our predicament. We all sense this. As we get older, I think we sense it more. When you're young, you don't, you don't feel it. And seeing the race of rational creatures in the way to perish and death reigning over them by corruption. This is Athanasius. Seeing, too, that the threat against transgression gave a firm hold to the corruption which was upon us, and that it was monstrous that before the law was fulfilled it should fall through, seeing once more the unseemliness of what had come to pass, that the things whereof he himself was artificer were passing away, seeing further the exceeding wickedness of man, and how little by little they had increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves. You think of all the wicked things we do against our own selves. And seeing lastly how all men were under penalty of death, and every one of us has to die, he took pity on our race, and had mercy on our infirmity, and condescended to our corruption, and unable to bear that death should have the mastery, lest the creature should perish, and his father's handiwork in men be spent for naught, he takes unto himself a body, and that of no different sort from ours, the incarnation. The whole story is here. He's interpreting why it was that it occurred. It occurred to save a desperate situation. For the word, this is Athanasius, for the word, perceiving that no otherwise could the corruption of men be undone save by death, while it was impossible for the word to suffer death, because the word, of course, cannot suffer death, but a body can, a man can suffer death, being immortal and son of the Father, to this end he takes to himself a body capable of death, that it, by partaking of the word who was above all might be worthy to die in the stead of all, and might, because of the word which had come to dwell in it, remain incorruptible. The man that receives the word, the body that receives the word, which comes from a virgin, cannot be ultimately held by death. The word cannot be held by death. And that thenceforth corruption might be stayed from all by the grace of the resurrection. So here's the whole story. That's what happened. Or at least that's what we believe. We try to believe. We hope we believe. Whence by offering unto death the body he himself had taken as an offering and sacrifice free from any stain, straight away he put death from all his peers by the offering of an equivalent. So here we have Athanasius giving the doctrine of the atonement. It's not just an essay about the incarnation. It's an essay about creation, incarnation, and then what in the creation and the fall, which is the need for the incarnation, the incarnation, and then the atonement, that is how the incarnation transmits life to a dying race. So, skip over a couple beautiful passages and then I'll be wrapping it up. For as when the likeness painted on a panel, that's like an icon or a painting, has been effaced by stains from without, but he's referring to human beings who should be in the image of God, but no longer seem to be. They're just contorted and selfish and fallen and captured by an infinitude of sins. 
to the point where St. Paul says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? So, for as when the likeness painted on a panel has been effaced by stains from without, he whose likeness it must needs come, he whose likeness it is must needs come once more to enable the portrait to be renewed on the same wood. In other words, the person who was sitting for the portrait has to come back and sit there again so that you can paint the portrait if the thing has faded away. He's saying we were meant to be like Jesus, but that who is the image and the son of the Father. We human beings were meant to be in the image and likeness of God, but we fell. He had to come and be there as somehow the image so that we could learn again and take that image again upon us. So Athanasius writes, For, for the sake of his picture, even the mere wood on which it is painted is not thrown away, but the outline is renewed upon it. In the same way also the most holy Son of the Father, being the image of the Father, came to our region to renew man once made in his likeness and find him as one lost by the remission of sins, as he says himself in the Gospels, I came to find and to save the lost. Whence he says to the Jews also, except a man be born again, not meaning as they thought birth from a woman, but speaking of the soul born and created anew in the likeness of God's image. But since wild idolatry and godlessness occupied the world, and I think uh, that's still prominent today, and the knowledge of God was hid, whose part was it to teach the world concerning the Father? And then he said it was the Son. Now, he goes on at great length to explain how all of this was not his invention. He is really analyzing a historical fact that was predicted and prophesied for centuries in advance, then occurred, leaving everyone so puzzled that they continued to say, we don't know who you are. Who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you are, and some say you are. And finally, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That means you are the incarnate God. The incarnation was professed by Peter, and Athanasius is simply trying as a Christian disciple to explain what that was. It was the eternal God coming into a fallen world in order to save a dying humanity. So Athanasius writes this essay and explains all of this. And the emperor calls together all of the Christian world to the Council of Nicaea about seven years after he writes. He writes this in 318. Athanasius is not yet a bishop. He's the assistant to the Bishop of Alexandria, somewhat like Joseph Ratzinger at the Second Vatican Council. A peritus. And uh, nevertheless, at Nicaea, there was a major- possibility of majority was going to say that Jesus was not the Son of God. Following Arius, the great phrase they used was, there was a time when he was not. That's the phrase they used. It's like a line that has a point to begin or a vector, and you've got the point, which is divine, and then everything after that is temporal or human. Arius was accepting the entire line, but he didn't want to accept that divine original point. And a lot of people agreed with him because it made more sense. Humanly speaking, it was an attractive idea. And some of the Roman leadership actually kind of thought that maybe this 
would be suitable for a religion the empire could base itself on. And the one who stood in the way was Athanasius. He said, no, Christ is truly divine. If he's not truly the word and truly the son of God, then the entire enterprise is a facade, is a farce. It's just a story. It's a Madison Avenue myth. Because only God could accomplish the restoration from death that was needed. Not a man, according to the entire logic of the scriptures and of reason. So Athanasius said we must maintain the teaching that Peter professed, that he is the son of the living God, that he rose from the dead and is incorruptible. And all of the passages in St. Paul which speaks of him as part of the Godhead, which is a shock. It's a shock to Muslims. It's a shock to a lot of Christians today. But Catholics who keep the Orthodox teaching in keeping with Athanasius must believe in the full divinity of Jesus. I'm not saying that it is easy. In fact, I, in some ways, rationally, it seems too good to be true, in a sense. But it is true. And it's the only secret that explains the existence of this church still today. Because otherwise, it would have fallen by the wayside. It would have gone the way of the Hittites or the Zoroastrians. Because there is some spirit, there is a, the whole of human history in a sense can be summarized in this way. This body, which we call the mystical body of Christ, this church, is still living in the world, sacramentally existing, truly, in a way more true than the physical existence. It hasn't been killed by all the sins of the cardinals and bishops and priests and lay people and some popes. The, the, the church is the body of Christ. He breathed his spirit on the apostles and he said, I will be with you until the end of the world. This is our faith. The incarnation is the linchpin of it. The defender of the incarnation is Athanasius. That's much too brief and too simplistic, but that's my speech <laughs> to you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Moynihan. As usual, we'll take a, a quick break, uh, three, four, maybe I'll give you five minutes tonight. What do you think? I'll give you five minutes. And then we'll come back together for a, a short five-minute Q&A. Uh, for those that can stay around, there's still some refreshments in the back. We're going to go five minutes max. I might give you seven. Five questions max. Make sure your question is one sentence long and has a question mark on the end. And I'll be the, um, the runner here, okay? Thank you. Did Arius ever recant? You know, I haven't read the latest dispatches from the fourth century. <laughs> no, I don't think he did. Uh, no. Not, not to, to answer a question that wasn't geared towards me, but I did read something. I thought, you know, God's got a funny sense of humor, and the really bad guys tend to, to, like, at the end of their life, they split open and worms come out of them. And I think Arius was about to be restored when that happened to him. <laughs> Maybe I was dreaming one night, but okay. Thank you. In a word, what happened to Athanasius after he wrote this book? Did he spend a fair amount of his life in exile? Yes. <laughs> he was exiled five different times. It would be as if your parish priest here continually received word after some little committee of 
parishioners went to the bishop and said, we don't want him here, and he's exiled to Charlottesville. Uh, Athanasia spent six years in Trier in, on the border of Germany. He spent three years on a second exile in Rome. He was outside the city of Alexandria in a third exile among the tombs of his ancestors. And in those years, in those months and years, he studied the monastic life. And he actually is one of the great links. He wrote a life of St. Anthony, St. Anthony of the Desert, not Anthony of Padua. St. Anthony of the Desert from about 256 to about 356. He lived to be 100 years old. And when he came into the city of Alexandria after living on salad and water and some bread, they said his, and praying night and day, they said his face shone as if he were one of the gods from Greek myth and legend. And this is uh, something interesting both for uh, dietary purposes <laughs> and uh, no, more so it's a Eastern tradition that uh, man in some way is meant to be divinized, divinized, whatever this would mean. Uh, ultimately, it would be turned into love. But whether this would have external consequences like light shining from you or emanating from you, occasionally it seems to happen with saints. But Athanasius finally was received back after having been denounced. He was, he was actually at one time accused of stopping the grain shipments from Alexandria to Constantinople and Rome, and therefore he was removed on essentially, I guess, financial corruption charges. But I don't think they were true. And uh, so he had political enemies in the church who had the ear of the emperor, and he was removed on four occasions, and therefore, no, five occasions, five exiles during his lifetime. But the last few years of his life, he was uh, praised, and he was contented, and he died in his own bed in Alexandria. In other words, you should start fasting. I have one thing to say, and that is that, uh, you know, the, when I say prayer, fasting, almsgiving during, Lent, during Advent, um, you say, well, but the church says, the church says the minimum, at least you got to do this. But if you want to grow in holiness, you got to do a whole lot more than that. Think about it. Get the meat out of the fridge during Advent. I, I would like to ask the speaker, what, if any, connection do you draw from the fact that St. Athanasius was the only one uh, standing for the Incarnation as we, practicing Catholics, um, preach and hold today. And the fact that in our diocese, at least, the only church that refused to give up the Tridentine Mass was St. Athanasius on Route 7. You know, the Son of Man was a uh, messianic title. And so uh, it, it, it didn't really mean the Son of Man as human. It meant the Son of God. In other words, it was a title in the book of Daniel that the Jews all knew referred to the Messiah. And whether the Messiah was going to be actually divine or not was an issue the Jews themselves were debating. Uh, the Tridentine Mass, I did a talk about the Tridentine Mass. I think Pope Benedict is moving very carefully. Some people are upset with the slowness or the perceived confusion of his moves, but he has certainly made, and, and on the far right we have people who denounce him as a you know, worse than a liberal, because he, in a way, uh, is perceived as, uh, by giving a little bit, in a way, it's like, uh, how do you call that, uh, good cop, bad cop, Bell Gibson and others uh, who are, what we would say, denouncing the modernized church, I think that Pope Benedict is not doing enough and that even this restoration of the Tridentine Rite from Summorum Pontificum, his document, on uh, 
2007, since you're referring to Route 7. Uh, July 7th, 2007, after hesitating for about a year and a half, and uh, cardinals flying in saying, don't publish that document, uh, the Pope finally published it. And he is both appreciated and uh, uh, condemned because he said the old mass is nothing wrong with it. The old mass is beautiful. In fact, the old mass, in many ways, if you read the document, is more solemn, more conducive to elevating thoughts toward the sacred than what has become of the new mass. You'd have to go read the document, but and but he doesn't impose this because he doesn't want to seem to be a person who is rejecting an entire generation of efforts to make the church less of a rigid shell, less of a kind of mausoleum, not that it was, but it is what people perceived it had become. These are complicated things, but some people, I myself always loved the old mass, but I've attended quite a number recently, and I find that they're celebrated almost with a sense often of uh, triumphalism or of archaism, which is a little disturbing. The mass as it was once celebrated was an ordinary Sunday mass. It was nothing unusual about it. it was ordinary Sunday Mass. And so to make it into this kind of super exciting uh, cultural statement, to me, is a mistake. I think if we were to continue along another 50 or 75 years, that the old Mass will return increasingly to have a weight in the liturgical life of the church with all of the riches of all of the traditions associated with it. I think that that's what the Pope opened the door to. And I think he's like Moses, you know, Mount Nebo, looking into the promised land. He realized that things happened in the 60s and then in the 70s. And then he started becoming more conservative himself. And then we had John Paul II, who was interested in the fall of the Soviet Union and the pro-life agenda, but not so much in liturgical issues. And finally, and, and Pope Benedict, as Ratzinger, was writing and writing, saying the lit liturgy has become a show. It's become uh, 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 a showcase for the pastor and not a commemoration of the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord. I think the Old Mass is rich with Davidic and Psalms and suffering and uh, hesitation and drama, which has been reduced, and consciously so, in the New Mass. And I think if you just allow both, as this Pope has decided to do, it's, it's not clear to me what's going to happen, but it seems that this Old Mass with the richness will slowly emerge. And... As people experience and study, they'll bring that into their spiritual and liturgical life. So I think, I do think that your statement, Athanasius I don't think was the only one. I think there were always 10, 20, 30 percent who remained with him. Every great battle in history, there's a few people who hold fast. There's a few people on the other side who hold fast, and then there's a large number of people who are undecided, and they'll just go with the wind, and they'll go with the politically correct position. But if you hold fast, and you wait, and you stand, as time goes by, the wind can shift again. So I think there's great riches in our tradition that we can preserve and hand on to our children, even if we don't see certain things in our own lifetimes. Just some rambling thoughts. Okay, one last question. Uh, this is more of a journalist question, but any update on the talks with Pope Benedict and Lefebvre's?
no. Uh, um, I, I wrote an article saying that this was um, historic, and I was attacked for that recently. I think George Weigel didn't attack me by name, but he said so, so alleged insiders think this is important talks. They're not important at all. Nothing historic about them. Nothing's in question. And I disagree. I think <laughs> the Lefebvreists, who did disobey John Paul II, and if you stay apart from the great body of the church, you can develop a kind of schismatic spirit. And there's a danger of that. But their theology was not un-Catholic. There's no heresies that they were excommunicated for. They were excommunicated for a disobedient act, which in canon law, uh, there's a lot of space in canon law. The canon law is actually a beautiful thing in the church because it gives a lot of room for individual conscience. You're allowed to do many things if you think it's the right thing. You may be wrong and you may be punished, but you're not often, often you're not excommunicated because you think you had reason. Lefebvre may have thought, well, I had a reason. Um, the fact is that for many years, nobody talked to anybody, and they said it wasn't about the liturgy, but it was about Vatican II, and about the specific teaching of ecumenism, religious freedom, the role of the clergy and laity, and these were the matters that Lefebvre's essentially were saying they, I don't think they said that Vatican II taught error. I don't think they said that. They said after Vatican II, these were interpreted in the most liberal way, and they went in such a way as to go against the mind of the council, and we don't want to go along with that. So they dug their heels in. They said, we're going to be a little separate group, not going along, but we're willing to talk. But the Vatican, year after year, said, no, we're not going to discuss that. When the Pope agreed to allow these discussions, in my opinion, it's a new thing. It opens up the chance of discussing what the mind of the council was. And I say this because even on occasion, some, a cardinal in Rome, Cardinal Casper, once said to me, we need more than anything to really go back and study the mind of the council. And someone should write a book saying, what was the mind of the council? Because it's contested. So, I don't have a report on the talks, which are secret, and it may be that they're not important and won't lead to great uh, reflection, the insight into the, the confusion and crisis, the sort of post-conciliar confusion. But uh, I think it's a, a development that's worthy of uh, watching closely, that, the, that this small group of men there is actually taking on these questions. There's about eight of them. Four on each side, I believe. One of the men who was most influential on me was a poet named T.S. Eliot. And uh, he was Anglican and uh, uh, sort of a high Catholic Anglican. And in his poetry, increasingly toward the end of his life, he was taking up religious themes. And in the four quartets, he takes up the concept of incarnation. So I thought I would just end tonight with just a few lines of T.S. Eliot's The Dry Salvages, Part 4. Is that okay? Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor and selflessness and self-surrender. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time, the distraction fit lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen or the winter lightning or the waterfall or the or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses 
hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood, is incarnation. Here, the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Here, the past and future are one. Thank you, Dr. Morningham. Thank you, Dr. Morningham.